Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jachan, I uh, can't pronounce these names, Median, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba, and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Lethuam, and Lemumum. And the sons of Midian were, and we're going to skip all these names here, uh, verse 5, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, and there Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after that the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beir Lahai Roy. Lord, thank you for your word and for all that we're going to consider this morning, and we trust that you will speak to us and lead us and minister to us in this time, and that we, Lord, will just be encouraged and challenged and stimulated to growth as we consider all the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Large portion of scripture, but there's a, there's a few very salient points for us here this morning. We now come to the point in time where Abraham passes from the scene and beginning with chapter 12 up to uh, chapter 25 here, we've had sort of a chronicle of Abraham's life and what God has done in and through his life, Abraham's faithfulness, Abraham's failures. And he comes to the point in time, remember a couple of chapters ago, um, Sarah, his wife, had passed away. So Abraham now comes to the point where he takes another wife unto himself and still at his ripe old age is still virile enough to have another family and has uh, many more sons by her. Uh, the one notable name in that list is Midian from which the Midianites came, but the rest are not really talked about much going forward. And the one thing to keep in mind as we go through these Old Testament passages, especially in the book of Genesis, is that we're really concerned with one genealogy, aren't we? And that's the genealogy that leads to the Lord, that leads to our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why these other bloodlines are not really followed or talked about, because we're really concerned about Abraham and then Isaac. And then Isaac will have two sons, which we'll discover today, Esau and Jacob. And from there, we'll again follow the bloodline, which is through Jacob to the Messiah. So it says here in verse 7, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Now remember, 100 years ago, at age 75, God spoke to Abraham. That's when he began to speak to him. That's when he gave him the promises. That's when he began to say to him, get out from here and go to a country I will show you. That's when he began to say to him, you're going to have a child by Sarah and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have to wait, but that child will come. 
And then we discovered that when Abraham was 100 years old, that's when the child came. So he waited 25 years for his son to be born. And he and Sarah had a few challenges along the way, as we've discovered and talked about. But now Abraham, at age 175, comes to the point in time where he passes from this earth. In verse 8, then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Proverbs 16.31 says, The silver-haired head is a crown of glory, if it is found in the way of righteousness. You know, one of the things that grieves me about our society today, and there are so many, is how our society seems to cast aside the people of age and maturity and wisdom. And uh, entering that generation myself, I'm a little more sensitive to it now. But, um, you know, one thing I remember growing up, and certainly we all probably have memories similar to this, uh, if you were blessed and fortunate enough to grow up around your grandparents, you know, they had wisdom. And, you know, uh, you know maybe <laughs> our grandparents, you know, my grandparents raised families through the Depression. And so uh, they weren't always joyful and happy people because of what they had experienced in life, because they went through some of the hardest and darkest days in this country. My grandfather fought in World War I. His oldest sons fought in World War II. Uh, they all had post-traumatic stress but didn't know what it was. Uh, they raised uh, eight kids. Uh, my dad's family came from 13. You know, so large families through those times, and you wonder, how did they survive? You know, and they just found a way to get through, and, you know, everything was valuable. Nothing was wasted. You know, a, a label on a can was, you know, fodder for fire. You know, uh, drippings from your cooking was used for flavoring the food. You know, today, we are a disposable society. If we don't like something, we just throw it away, and we buy a new one. And we have not learned to live um, in a way that we, we have to cry out to God for everything. They had to cry out to God for everything. Uh, they had to make their own soap, you know, those kinds of things. And so, you know, we've come to a place today where as people get older, we just kind of go, well, they've outlived their usefulness. And that is really more of an industrial approach rather than a human approach in looking at people. And so it's something that grieves me, and I hope it's something that the church of God will not forsake in these days ahead, but that we will value uh, people as they age and not despise their wisdom, but listen to them and uh, ask them to tell us the stories of the days of old so that we can you know, glean from them wisdom and information that will be helpful to us in life. We should never uh, despise that or cast it off. Here Abraham, we are told, died in the good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Full of years suggests a quality of life, not just the quantity of time. It suggests satisfied with life. And I think that there are many people today, at all stages of life, not just as we get older, who are not satisfied with life and who are not living in such a way. And I'm speaking of believers, the world, we understand that they're not satisfied. 
That's normal, that's to be expected. But for believers, we are to be satisfied with life. We are to walk with God and we are to walk with him hand in hand and cast our cares upon him because he cares for us and uh, we love him because he first loved us. One person said, how few people really experience joy and satisfaction when they reach old age. When they look back, often it is with regret. When, the look ahead is, uh, when, when they look ahead, it is with fear. And when they look around, it is with complaint. You see, death is not a threat to the person who trusts Jesus Christ and who lives by his word. True faith is our obedient response to the word of God. You know, today for all of us, for all ages, today we are writing our obituaries, a thought that we don't often like to think about. By how we live, we are writing our obituary and we are preparing our last will and testament as far as, far as our spiritual heritage is concerned. Today, the question is, are we getting ready for the last stages of life's journey? <clears throat> Listen to this. None of us die too soon. I want to say that again, and I want you to hear it in the context of the COVID madness that we're living in right now, because people are living in fear of spreading the virus and dying or causing someone around them to die. Listen, none of us dies too soon. Our lives are in the hands of God. And whether we die at nine months old or 90 years, as the psalmist wrote in your book were written, Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 139. Scriptural wisdom demands that we number our days. Psalm 90. So teach us to number our days that we may present a heart of wisdom. Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. You see, here's the question, and this is going to come up as a big theme today. Do you believe in and understand the sovereignty of God? If in case you don't know what that word means, it means that God is over all and God is in charge of all things. Do you understand that your life was written from before the foundation of the earth? Do you understand that God is in control, that God knows the beginning from the end? that God has appointed what the day will be and what the hour will be when you and I will take our last breath. And I'd like to boldly suggest to you this morning that to be so vain as to think that you and I can control that is foolish. It's pride. God is in charge. God is in control. And we are to live our lives unto the Lord without fear. We are to live our lives full of faith, for we walk by faith, not by sight, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 John, the Apostle John says, 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. You see, if we understand and we are walking in the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us by virtue of his blood on the cross and his suffering so that we might have eternal life with God the Father, if we don't understand that, if we don't know that, if we don't own that, then we walk in fear. And whatever is not of faith is sin. Fear and faith are antithetical to one another. 
Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God has not given us, believers, a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Listen, the world has lost its mind, has it not? With COVID. But the sad thing is much of the church, as I look out across the church landscape, much of the church has lost its sound mind with respect to COVID. You know, there's always tests, there's always trials, there's always challenges. But the thing that honestly grieves my heart the most in these days is that the church is falling prey to the wiles and the schemes of the devil. And he's done a great job because he's taken fear and he's used it as a motivator, and so many people across the Christian spectrum have bought into it. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me, if you would give me a little bit of leeway this morning, I will not fear what can a virus do to me. If our days are written in his book and they are numbered since before the foundation of the earth and if God is sovereign and if God is in control, then let me encourage you this morning, live by faith, not by fear. The day will come when each one of us will breathe our last unless... The Lord comes back for his church and we are swept up in that glorious event called the rapture to go rise and meet him in the air. And I certainly hope and pray for that. But having, having in the past two years sat at the bedside of my parents and watched them take their last and watched the process by which they, they passed from this earth and having the great privilege to, to sit there beside them as they were hassling for their last breath and with my family to pray over them and to read scripture to them. Listen, if, if I go before, you know, the Lord returns, I pray that it would be like that, that my family could be gathered around praying and reading scripture. But you know, that moment, and I remember that as clear as day, and maybe some of you do as well if you've been through that experience. You know, in that moment, there was a sense of the presence of the Lord. And that moment did not come before God had ordained that that moment would come. I had an uncle a few years ago who, one of my mom's brothers who was, uh, he had always had angina, which is a heart condition for most of his life. And, you know, we all thought that's what was going to take him. But later in life, he developed prostate cancer. And that's what took him. And you see, often we think we know what might happen or when we might go or we have these plans in our mind. And I tell you, put those things aside. Live with freedom, live with faith, knowing that God is in control and that God is in charge. You see, Abraham, when he came to the end of his life, he had fulfilled what God had ordained for him. And so it is for you and for me. Well, as we continue along in verse 9 
of chapter 25, and his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the same place where his wife Sarah was buried. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. Now remember, Isaac is the heir. Isaac is the chosen one through whom the Messiah would come. And we see here that although Isaac lived longer than either Abraham or Jacob, we'll find out as we go through his story, only six chapters here in the book of Genesis are devoted to Isaac's life. And only one verse in Hebrews 11, and when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, so often that refers us back to the people of faith and how God saw them and how God viewed their lives. And yet Isaac only had sort of a, a mention in uh, Hebrews 11, 9. And then it says here that they were, uh, Isaac was dwe- dwelling at Beir Lahai Roy. It was the place where Hagar, if you remember from our earlier stories, was heard by God when she ran away. And she uh, was living in that difficult time where there was strife between her mistress, Sarah, and herself. And uh, the Lord spoke to her there and called her back and delivered her. It was also the place where Isaac was meditating when he first saw Rebekah as she was coming to meet him when the servant had gone to get her and to bring her to his master. And now it's the place where God blessed him. Verse uh, 12, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, so that's listed here. And uh, Ishmael's mother, of course, was Hagar. And then these are the names of his sons listed here. And these were the years, verse 7, of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria, and he died in the presence of all his brethren. And that's the end of Ishmael's mention, because it is not through him that the bloodline of the Messiah would come. Then in verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. Now you may remember in chapter 22 as Abraham and Isaac went up to Mount Moriah to the place where God had commanded that Isaac would be offered as a sacrifice. That that happened around the age of 25 or 30 or so of Isaac's life. So now we're 10 to 15 years down the road when Isaac meets his bride, Rebekah. And so uh, they had gotten married, and now Isaac, verse uh, 21, pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, remember when Rebekah was departing from her home that there was sort of a prophecy that her family had prayed over her, which was, that she would become the mother of, of, of thousands and millions, which was uh, true, it's what was going to happen. And of course, the promise had also been given to Isaac through Abraham from the Lord that indeed that's the way the Lord was going to operate. So as Isaac and Rebekah came together, we understand that they came together with expectation. And you can understand that, right? That this is what was spoken to them by the Lord and by their families and prayed over them and prayed for them. So when Rebekah met her beloved Isaac, Isaac and heard him reiterate the divine promise of offspring that his seed would be as the stars, 
She fully expected to soon be pregnant, but it did not happen, and now 20 years have passed. And Isaac was approaching 60, and Rebekah was still barren, and Isaac's brother, Ishmael, had produced 12 sons to Isaac's zero. So you know that they were looking at these things. And it's interesting that as we see here that Isaac pleaded with the Lord and that he prayed. The same word for prayed is used in Exodus to describe Moses' powerful entreaty of the Lord to remove the plagues of Egypt. So there's prayer, then there's an intense prayer. And so that's what was happening here as Isaac was pleading with the Lord. Now, remember Abraham and Sarah as they had come to that place in their lives after they had been waiting many years, they decided to help God out. And that's how Hagar entered the scene and how Ishmael entered the scene. But here, hopefully, Isaac has learned from his father's mistakes. And rather than he and Rebekah uh, going to other kinds of means, they instead prayed. And so let that be an encouragement for you, for me, for us. Let it be a reminder that when we encounter difficulties, when we encounter trials, that hopefully our first response is to pray, to seek the Lord. And so Rebecca became pregnant. But the children struggled, verse 22, within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? And she went to inquire of the Lord. You see, now she's, in, she's having difficulty Remember, there's no, no OBGYN, no ultrasounds, no pregnancy tests. And as she's going through her pregnancy, there's something going on within her. Her belly is churning. The babies are just going berserk within her belly. In fact, the language would indicate that they were literally wrestling in the womb. And so the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? What's going on within me? What's happening inside of me? And so she prayed. She went to inquire of the Lord. Again, an encouragement. When we encounter some kind of difficulty, some kind of trial, go to the Lord, cry out to God, say, Lord, what is going on here? And the Lord spoke to her, verse 23, and said, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So as he speaks to her, he's telling her, first of all, you have twins. So thank God for his grace and that he let her know that she was having twins and didn't discover at birth, whoops, there's two in there. And he says there's two nations in your womb, not just two people. Two people groups shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Telling her that what tradition says, which is the oldest, would come out, and then he would, he would be, the oldest male would be, the owner of the birthright to the father's inheritance, and she say, and, and God is warning her up front many, many years in advance, at least probably 20 years in advance, that what's going to happen is the younger will be the one who takes the birthright. And all of this has to, of course, just kind of be like a blow your mind kind of a thing. Rebecca learned that the tumult in her womb was not of her or Isaac's doing, but was a part of a divine plan that God was working out for his own purposes and glory. The abiding fact is 
The order of nature is not necessarily the order of grace. Notice in all of this that God offers no explanations for why he's doing what he's doing. And he certainly offers no apologies for his choice. The love of God transcends human convention. His sovereign grace will not bow to the order of nature or to human expectations. His merciful election is a fact, whether we understand it or not. God's purposes are as set as they are incomprehensible. You see, God ordained this, God chose this to happen. So when her days were fulfilled, verse 24, for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. So this little red hairy football pops out. And afterward his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means heel catcher or supplanter, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So they waited for 20 years of marriage after many failed attempts to have children for God to answer their prayer. Now, what's recorded for us in that gap of the 20 years is that presumably this is the first time that they really prayed to the Lord that they got tired of waiting. And it makes me wonder, and, and I think it should cause us to ponder the fact that sometimes, of course, God always moves in his own time in his own way. But sometimes, remember, there's this verse in James that says, you have not because you ask not. And it makes me wonder, did God wait the 20 years to move in that way and to bring these children into their lives because they hadn't prayed? And I wonder, it's speculation on my part to be sure, but this is the first time it's recorded that Isaac went and he pleaded with the Lord and said, Lord, please, you know, you've promised, you know, you make, you know, it's not recorded, but you wonder, he knows the story of what happened with Abraham and Sarah, his father and his mother, and how God caused them to wait all those years, 25 years for Isaac to come along. Now they're approaching 20 years and Isaac is now praying, God, are you going to do to us what you did to my parents? Is there another five or six years in this? God, please listen, please hear. And so they came and they prayed and God answered and they gave birth and these two children come out. So between verse 26 and 27, we have another one of those huge gaps in time. They were born and then in verse 27, so the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob, a mild man dwelling in his tents. When it describes Esau, uh, it is just as he said, he was a real man's man, an outdoors man, a hunter, and that was his, his life. He was just, you know, the guy you would see today with the truck and with the, the camo gear on, and he would always be out in a duck blind or somewhere hunting deer. That would be Esau. But it says Jacob was a mild man, and the word is really sort of a misnomer. What it means is, he was sort of a sound, solid man, very quiet, very reserved, um, and that's the kind of man he was. But we also learn here that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we have this, this sad situation where the parents are now playing favorites, and it makes you wonder if, of, of course, maybe 
Rebecca loves Jacob the way she does because of what the Lord said that the older will serve the younger, and so she may have had this favoritism toward the younger son, Jacob. And so these boys grew up, and now we're many years later in verse 29. Jacob cooked a stew. He's at home cooking. Esau's out working in the field or hunting or whatever he's doing, and he comes in from the field, and he's weary. And we can all understand that if you've ever worked in that way, done some outdoor work, worked all day, just kind of exhausted yourself, and you've reached that point where it's like, I need to eat. My blood sugar's low. I'm just, I'm famished. And he comes in, and he smells the stew cooking. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Esau means hairy. But Jacob said, as he is an opportunist and he takes advantage of the situation, and in the sense here, you could argue that Jacob is trying to help God out and move things along. He says, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die, so what's his birthright to me? And you get the sense that Esau at that moment is so tired and so hungry, he just says, ah, whatever, I don't care, just, I'm hungry, man, give me something to eat. One person spoke of Esau in this way, he is the kind of man of whom we are in the habit of charitably saying that he is nobody's enemy but his own. But in truth, he is God's enemy because he wastes the splendid manhood which God has given him. He's passionate, impatient, impulsive, incapable of looking before him, refusing to estimate the worth of anything which does not immediately appeal to his sense, preferring the animal over the spiritual. He is rightly called a profane person in the New Testament. Esau was a shallow man governed by his feelings. And so that's what drove Esau. And Jacob takes advantage of it. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. You see, the son of the birthright received a double portion of the inheritance, and he also became the head of the family and the spiritual leader upon the passing of the father. The birthright was the older became the head of the family. He became the new patriarch when the father died. But he sold his birthright to Jacob, and Esau thought little of the spiritual heritage connected to the birthright. He valued only material things. So a spiritual birthright meant little to him when his stomach was hungry. Many, if not most people, also place little value on spiritual things. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, history shows us that men prefer illusions to realities, choose time rather than eternity, and the pleasures of sin for a season rather than the joys of God forever. Men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls. And multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to life, the life of the eternal spirit. Men sell their birthright for a bowl of soup. Spiritually speaking, many today despise their birthright. 
However, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that there is a treasury of riches that is given to us as children of God that would describe our birthright. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we find out that we are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are given the blessing of being chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. We are given the blessing of being adopted into God's family. We are given complete acceptance by God in Christ Jesus. We are given redemption from slavery and uh, from our sin unto forgiveness. Our forgiveness is true and total and complete. We are given the riches of God's grace. In fact, the New American Standard calls it, we have been lavished, or God's grace has been lavished upon us. We are being given the revelation and the knowledge and the mystery of God's will. Our inheritance is eternal in the heavens, and we are given the guarantee of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let us not reject or disregard our birthright. I just read an article this week. Uh, it was a Christian article that said, and I don't know where they you know, got this from, but they said uh, among a survey taken of, among women through this period of COVID, that because you know, the demands have been different because husbands have been home and that kind of thing and kids have been home and not been able to go to school and all of that, that many uh, ladies have reported that they've not read their Bible for a long, long time because of the way life changed. And I, I think that's something we all need to be aware of. You know, Life changed very dramatically for all of us in the last few months, but let's keep our priorities straight. And let's keep our relationship with the Lord front and center. As we cross over into chapter 26, we now discover there was a famine in the land. Besides the first time uh, that famine was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land of which I shall tell you. Remember, Abraham did that when that famine struck earlier on and he was headed down to Egypt and the Lord now speaks and intervenes in Isaac's life and says, don't do that. Stay here in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give all of these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. It took great faith for Isaac to listen to and obey the voice of God because there was a famine. And when there's a famine, that usually means there's no rain. And when there's no rain, there's no vegetation. And when there's no vegetation and no water... No one can survive. The animals can't survive. There's nothing for the animals to eat. There's no grain. And of course, there's no water. So life itself is jeopardized. Life itself is hanging by a thread. And so we are told in verse 6, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Um, and so as he's there, so it appears that he sort of made a journey just a short way, but he stopped and the Lord stopped him in his tracks and said, stay here. 
And so praise God that Isaac had the faith and the obedience to listen to the Lord. And in verse 7, the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she is my sister. So now somehow picking up the sins of the father, remember Abraham did that twice, for he was afraid to say, she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of this place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. So he had the faith to believe God when God spoke to him and said, hey, don't go down to Egypt, stay here and I'm gonna take care of you. I will bless you here where you are. But in that moment as the men came and he was faced with this reality that uh, he could be killed because his wife was so beautiful and they would wanna take her for themselves, he lies and he tries to work out the situation on his own. Now it came to pass, verse eight, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. If you have a King James, it says that he was sporting with his wife. And so it's interesting that he was having a romantic moment with his wife, and Abimelech saw that, called Isaac in and says, obviously, she's your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on her account, I was afraid. Again, I was living in fear. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So it's interesting how in these societies, they valued and honored marriage but not human life, because in both situations, these men, Abraham and Isaac, feared that they would be killed so that the marriage bond would be broken so that they could take their wife. Doesn't that seem a little weird, a little strange? That that would be the kind of law they would think, well, we don't want to you know, violate the sanctity of marriage, but uh, it's okay to kill somebody to get their wife. It's just kind of crazy, but that's the environment they were living in. So Abimelech says, what have you done? And Abimelech charged his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land. So in verse 12, it's like Isaac takes a breath and he goes, okay, I know God's gonna protect me now. He spared us. Now I know. So Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now, first of all, in a good time, when there is rain and when things are happening and when, when, when the production of the soil is good, you wouldn't expect the first time you sowed to reap a hundredfold. So here we are in a drought situation, in a famine situation, and God is blessing Isaac in such a way that he, he sowed and he reaped a hundredfold in one year. And it says, and the Lord blessed him. Do you realize in the scriptures that when we read of the blessing of the Lord, only a few times does it actually talk about material wealth and physical wealth. Normally, when it says the blessing of the Lord, it means the blessing of his presence. It means the spiritual blessings that God brings into our lives. It means peace. It means hope. It means satisfaction. It means joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the blessings of God. Yes, God may bless materially. God may bless financially. And praise God if and when he does that. But the primary way God blesses is not in the material financial realm. It's in the spiritual realm. The Lord blessed him, the Lord protected him, and the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous in verse 13. Again, the passage of time, many years that God blessed him, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. And now the Philistines are envying him. They see the blessing of God upon his life. And God is doing what needs to be done in that environment, in that time, in that day, so that people would see how God was blessing him. And you see here, there's a witness that's going out because of how God is putting his hand upon the life of Isaac. And Abimelech said, uh, excuse me, I skipped a verse. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they filled them with earth. And they did this because they were afraid and because they were jealous of the blessing of God on Isaac's life. They see God blessing him. They see the water. Think about this. In a time of drought, Abraham's, excuse me, Isaac is out there digging wells. And God is saying, boom, there's some water for you. It's just amazing how God is blessing him. And now Abimelech said to Isaac, go your way, get, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Now, you see sort of the pattern here that God used back uh, or forward in time with the Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember when the children of Israel had gone down and they'd become too great and Pharaoh became afraid. And so Abimelech said to Isaac, go away for you are much mightier. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. That would be living water, like an underground spring. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they quarreled with him. Esek means place of quarrel. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he gave it another name that indicates a struggle over the water. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And there he went up uh, to Beersheba. Now verse 24, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you. And multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So now we have this, this epiphany, this appearing of the Lord to him. And reconfirming his commitment to him. And remember God did this with his father Abraham on a number of occasions. And here he does it with Isaac. And we don't see it too often in Isaac's life, but here we see it where the Lord is appearing to him. And he says, 
The promises I've given to your father, I'm giving to you. Do not fear. And whenever we see the words do not fear, that means fear is present. And so here the Lord is speaking to him saying, do not fear. Why? Because I'm with you. And just as we said earlier, fear is not of faith. So this morning, maybe you need to hear these words here in the middle of verse 24. Do not fear for I am with you. And if you need to hear those words this morning, receive them in faith, knowing that the Lord is speaking to you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. And then thankfully, Isaac responded the way his dad had responded. He built an altar, <clears throat> he called on the name of the Lord, and he worshiped. And then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzda, one of the friends, and Pekal, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and since you've sent me away? But they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. And so we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. You see, the witness had gone out. The world had seen how God had blessed Isaac and his family and how God has had his hand upon them. And in that moment, his enemies saw that and they came and they said, look, we can't fight against you, so let's form a covenant with you and just have an agreement that we'll dwell together in peace. Verse 29, that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Man, when a pagan can say to you, wow, we see God's blessing in your life and you are the blessed of the Lord. Listen, something good is happening, right? God is moving. So he made them a feast and they ate and they drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And when Esau was 40 years old, he took wives, as wives, Judith, uh, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basmath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. And that's where we will pick it up next time. So now we are sort of seeing the passing of the baton in the sense of we're seeing the boys coming along and, and now beginning to have their lives. But I hope that you understand today and that you see, and I just decided to call this message sovereignty and faithfulness. I hope that you've been encouraged by and seen the sovereignty of God and his faithfulness to his people and to realize that God is sovereign in my life and your life and he is faithful to you and me and he expects from you and me a faithfulness to him. So let me encourage you today that God is with you you do not need to fear. God's blessing is upon you. You have a spiritual blessing as we talked about in Ephesians chapter one. And if you didn't catch all that stuff that I listed out, just go read Ephesians one, three through 14, and you will see it all listed out there for you. And understand that your identity in Christ, your heritage with the Lord is defined in the scriptures. 
and that God has blessed us and is blessing us and will bless us in the days ahead. And listen, we need his blessing, don't we? I mean, who knows what's after COVID, right? I'm not trying to be morbid, I'm just saying there's always going to be something, some situation in which we have to trust God. And we don't know what life is going to be like in the days ahead. We are not guaranteed tomorrow, but we are guaranteed that God will walk with us through anything that we face. Listen, in case you've not heard this in a long time, and as we come to the table, it's a good transition. God loves you. He died for you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to walk with him. Do you realize, and I can say this wholeheartedly, that when we don't walk with the Lord, when we forget him, when we aren't spending time with him and allowing him to speak into our lives, we are doomed to failure because we're not walking in faith, trusting the Lord. And yet, he has died and, and to give us everything. He, he is blessing us. It's like the, a table of, of bounty spread out before us And yet we kind of go, yeah, I don't want that. I want McDonald's. Listen, God loves you. He loves us. He has blessed us. He has given himself for us. What is it going to take to draw us to the table of the Lord and to receive all that he has for us? You know, here on this side of heaven, life will never be perfect. It will never be complete. But with Jesus walking with us, with him being with us until the end of the age, with the promise to to walk through anything with us, with the ability to know we can cry out to the Lord and he hears, with, with knowing that God will never forsake us, even if friends, even if your best friend betrays you, God will never betray you. God will never forsake you. So as we come to the table, and Pastor Mitch leads us in that this morning, we're going to sing an old hymn, Amazing Grace. And we're just going to remember the goodness of God. And then Pastor Mitch is going to come and lead us to the table. And we're going to celebrate the love of Jesus shed for us on the cross. Amen. Lord, this morning we love you, we bless you, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. And Lord, we can never say thank you enough. Thank you is so inadequate. But Lord, thank you. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for loving us. And Lord, this morning, if there's been a word spoken that, or many words that, that people need to hear, we pray that they would be able to receive those and take those to heart this morning and, and accept them as your word to them and your encouragement to them, or if necessary, even your correction. And Lord, may we embrace that and walk in faith and not in fear. May we walk by faith and not by sight. May we walk in love and grace and mercy, knowing that's how you interact with us, God. Thank you for that. And as we sing this song and we come to the table of the Lord, may you bless us and meet us in such a wonderful way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.